0: Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in the CBD of Melbourne. And do we have a live audience here today? Yeah. Yeah. There's a few live people out there. And we also aim to have a bit of fun. Who said exploring the big questions of life shouldn't be enjoyable? The people who met Jesus Christ in person faced the same big life questions we face today. But when they met Jesus, things immediately started to change for them. In this series of Logos Live Encounters with Jesus, we explore how the central events and meetings in Jesus' life can change our own lives forever. And today we're considering the solution to the world's greatest problem. And to help us, we have MasterChef winner Kate Brax join us. Kate is from Orange in New South Wales and famously entered the third series of the TV show MasterChef Australia in 2011, and she won. (laughs) Since then, Kate has shared her love of food with audiences around the world as a cooking demonstrator and public speaker, and she also strives to be the best wife and mum she can be, and she joins me now. Please welcome Kate Brax. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, Kate, welcome to Logos Live, um, and congratulations on your MasterChef victory in Thanks. 2011. It's a few years ago Four now. years ago. A few years ago, yeah. <laughs> has it changed
1: your life at all? Absolutely. Um, I can remember Gary saying to us on the very first day of filming, you've come to MasterChef to change your life, and I remember thinking my silent reply was, no, quite like my life. <laughs> Just wanted to learn a bit more about food and cooking. Yeah. But absolutely, he was right. It has definitely changed the look and shape and feel of my life, yeah. but... um. No, it's been good, good, good changes. Even though I didn't feel like I needed changes, right? Fantastic.
0: Good. Well, it's not every day that we have a Master Chef on Logos Live. So, in today's <laughs> quiz, I thought I'd test you on how well you know Master Chef. okay. So, are you ready? Gosh, I'm not allowed to fail this one, am I? I don't think you'll fail, but okay, you, know, you never know. So, here's the first question. There's two questions. Who of the following was not a guest chef in the 2011 Master Chef series? Oh. Okay. Was it A. Adriano Zumbo, B. Maggie Beer? C, Nigella Lawson, or D, Ronald McDonald? <laughs>
1: Let me think about that. Ooh, testing the memory. Yeah, have to go Ronald McDonald. D- Thank goodness. <laughs> Not sure I would have been overly impressed. Right. But anyway. they, didn't, they, they
0: don't have a McDonald's MasterChef no, component? I,
1: I think there would have to be something that says MasterChef. Can't be sponsored by McDonald's, surely.
0: Right, okay, yeah. Did you have a favourite guest chef, someone that you really enjoyed?
1: Look, I absolutely love Maggie Beer. Um, For me, she's... Technically, not a chef, so I immediately relate. She just loves food and cooking she um, She grew up in the city and then moved to the Barossa Valley. Um, I grew up in Sydney and moved to the country in orange in, in New South Wales. So we have a lot of sort of similarities, but I guess more than anything, I love her approach to food. She just enjoys fresh real food it's not there's no pretension in her cooking and she has the most amazing palate every recipes of every recipe of hers that i've cooked i just think oh that is good so yeah she was definitely my favorite and i was actually pretty fortunate at the end of the top 50 week of filming, they chose a few people to go on a masterclass um, and I was chosen and I didn't find out till we got there, but it was to Maggie Beer's Pheasant Farm. And when I came home after that, I said to my husband, well, if that is all I get out of MasterChef, <laughs> I'm pretty happy. All
0: right. You got a bit more there. I've got a bit more. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, okay, question two. Second quiz, quiz question. How many people watched you win the MasterChef oh. finale on TV in 2011? Gosh. Was it? A, 22 million people. Every single Australian tuned mm-hmm. in. Was it B, 2.7 million people, a ratings bonanza? Was it C, 1.1 million people, a lot of people tuning in? Or D, just 27 people, just your family and a dog?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's either B or C... Uh, I have Don't a, be feeling, too I be too have a <laughs> feeling it was B. I remember it being around the $2 million mark, yeah, it but was. you're saying $2.7 It was
0: $2.7 million. It yeah. was B, correct That's answer. it's a lot of it people, was isn't it? It is a lot of people, because the $1.1 million was the number for the MasterChef Series 5. Yes, and right. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. So yeah. you're obviously much more popular. Obviously. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> it's
1: all so about Kay, me. So Kay, our
0: MasterChef quiz, you got two out of two. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. Give her a big <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> so Kay, how do you feel? that your cooking was watched by so many people.
1: Yeah, it's a very strange position to be in because I still see myself very much as a home cook. I love food, I love cooking, and I have done it professionally now since the show. Um, But to think that people watch that entire journey is a bizarre thought. Yeah. Um, But something that I'm also really happy to have have experience you know people see you for who you really are you have your highs you have your lows that is actually the same for even our top chefs today and when you talk to them they'll say oh yeah we have bad days in the kitchen too and so it's just nice to be able to say you know what nobody has it all together Mm -hmm. (laughs) everybody has good days and bad days and look I'm still the same
0: so I think didn't Matt Preston say that the key to winning MasterChef is not to be necessarily the best chef but just not to cook the worst dish twice in a row
1: (laughs) yeah and my husband and he had a fantastic conversation about that because that was what Luke's mantra was to me the whole way through he said you don't have to be the best just don't be the worst and you'll be all right <laughs> okay. so yeah
0: So what was it like being on MasterChef?
1: Um, Look, you feel like you're entering a completely different world because having been someone who'd only ever viewed television as a viewer, um, to then be put into this world of television production is quite a strange thing. Um, On our set at the beginning, I think there were about 90 crew to create the show. That was at the beginning. That obviously dropped down as our numbers of contestants dropped down. But it is a big production... Now, MasterChef, admittedly, is one of the bigger productions, Mm. particularly within the reality TV genre. Um, But to suddenly be put into this place where you, up until that point, have thought, oh, I thought it was just one camera and a couple of people hovering around, you sort of... Awakened to the idea that actually this is much bigger than I ever thought it was going to be. Yeah,
0: yeah. Mm. So, so it's a surreal experience? It I was have-
1: very surreal, particularly in the beginning, mm-hmm. um, very nerve wracking uh, because the way in which they talk to you as well, you know, you've come to change your life. This is the biggest decision you'll ever make, which is kind of a bit. Uh, it's easy to get caught up in that, and I constantly was telling myself, this is just MasterChef, it's just television, it's just food. I'm not saving lives in here. You know, but how um, did the producers react yeah, to Yeah, they it? didn't like that. <laughs> Kate, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just MasterChef, this is yeah. it's much more important. Than but it. it is a very surreal position that you're in, um, particularly as a contestant, because you're also kept sort of shut away from the rest of the world. Partly that is for your own protection, so that you can just focus on what you're doing and not worry about how you're being perceived in the media or out beyond the walls Um, and partly I think for their logistics management just to keep life a bit easier for them because it is a very big logistical enterprise Uh, so yeah you don't have your phone you don't have your wallet you can't just go for a walk when you want to you can't just even go to the bathroom when you want to you know because you've got schedules and and you know you can't necessarily go into the kitchen at that particular time because then you might see what the next challenge is that they're setting up so there's lots of your freedoms uh, In some way, taken away, and it was interesting watching different contestants um, deal with that in different ways. Some people really struggled with that. I think, having been a mum with little babies who wake you up in the middle of the night and who don't necessarily want to do what you want to do all the time, in some ways, I was partly prepared for that. You
0: were well prepared for that, yeah. So, so obviously, you entered the competition because you love food, you wanted to learn a bit about cooking. So, where where did you get your love of food from?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I've questioned myself over that. Um, My mum is a a good cook, but she's not a passionate cook. She doesn't love it. Mm -hmm. Um, She cooks to feed the family. Uh, My Nana was a very passionate cook, but I didn't see her much. Um, She lived a long way from where we lived. so We only ever saw her once or twice a year. All my memories of my time spent with my Nana were in the kitchen, though. So I think we had that right from the beginning. Maggie Beer talks about a food gene, a foodie gene. I reckon that's the best description. I think there was something in me that was different to my sisters that made me connect with my nana over food and that just drove me to enjoy it. I don't have any better explanation than that.
0: That's great. Well, congratulations anyway on the MasterChef journey. (laughs) Um, Now, as part of Logos Live, we reflect on the scriptures, the Logos, and today we're going to meet someone who encounters Jesus. But before we do that, we're interested to hear... Why you believe the scriptures are worth following, so Kate, what convinced you to become a Christian believer?
1: Yeah, look, it's an interesting um, question. Um, I grew up in a Christian family, but before you immediately go, oh, well, therefore, that's why she thinks it's true. um, I went through a period of time in my early adult years where um, I would have said that I think God is real and God is true. But that was about where it ended. Um, I got to a point where it didn't really have any impact on my life. I carried on living the way I wanted to live. But I got to a point where I felt like something was missing. Um, do you ever have those moments where you, you catch yourself in the mirror and you go, who are you? Why are you here? What's the point of it all? You know, those, it is those big questions. And I think for each of us, it happens at different points in our life. I, I was about uh, 21 And I just had one of these moments of I don't get what this life is all about. And so I decided to go on a bit of a search. Um, I didn't want to just presume that the God that I'd been taught about as I was growing up was the only explanation for life. And so I did a huge amount of reading. Um, I just, anything I could get my hands on that, and looked at all the major world religions.
0: So what what did you read?
1: Uh, I can't remember the actual titles anymore, but I read about Islam. I read about Hinduism. I read about Buddhism. Just thinking about spirituality in a general sense rather than a set religion was really starting to take hold. So I read read a lot about different spirituality sort of books. Um, I also spoke to a lot of people about it, spoke to people that I knew that had different ways of thinking about life um, and quizzed them why. I'm sure they actually got sick of me. <laughs> you know, I wanted these deep conversations because I just, I just had this strong yearning to understand why I was here. Part of that, um, I actually spoke to my sister, my older sister, and said, I feel like I need to go back to church, but I don't really want to go back to the church that we grew up in. I'd felt let down by them um, for all sorts of reasons. And she suggested that I go to this uni church and she said, I've heard that it's really good. And I went along and it was basically dead, empty, hardly anybody there. But, you know, we were there, we'd walked in, you kind of have to stay. (laughs) And I heard this sermon that talked about being a Christian and having a relationship with God was actually not about what you do but about what God has already done for you. And it was the first time that I had heard that sort of a message where it wasn't about following this list of rules. I'd always thought growing up that being a Christian meant you were allowed to do these things, but you weren't allowed to do these things. And it was just this list that you had to keep. And I just felt that that was too hard and too restrictive and I just didn't like the fact that life was becoming all about rule-keeping. And this was the first time that I heard an explanation of that's actually not what it's about. Mm -hmm. And I remember saying to my younger sister who'd come with me, who was in a similar sort of position, she was questioning it all and so we decided we'd go together. And um, we came away and it was a two-part series, sermon series, and we thought, damn it, I want to go back and hear the second part, (laughs) but I don't know if I really want to go because the church is kind of empty and dead, nobody our age. But we decided we'd go one more week. And the following week we went, and it was packed, full of uni students. The week before had been holidays, and they'd all (laughs) been away. So we ended up going to that church a bit more regularly because I was hungry and I was hearing a different side to this Christian God that I'd ever heard before. Um, And in the end, what I discovered was that the God of the Bible is the only God where it's actually not about what you do. Um, every other major religion and even every other philosophy, even if you go down to you know, atheism where people claim that there is no God or, or religion, um, it still comes down to what you do that makes you good or right or, or yeah. okay. Whereas the God of the Bible is actually the only way of thinking about the world where it's not about what you do, it's about what he has done in order to reach out in relationship with you. And I found that incredibly compelling. And so I wanted to find out more about this God. So I then joined a Bible study group where I was taught faithfully about the God from the Bible, not just hearsay. I think when I'd, the church I'd grown up in was about teaching morals and about... Um, not sort of picking out a single verse from the Bible Mm. and and building a a story around that. Whereas this new church that I went to was actually about, let's look at what the Bible says God is like um, rather than just what we think he's like. Mm. Um, And so some of those things were a little bit confronting. Some of those things you think, I didn't really want God to be like that. Mm. Uh, But you have to take him at his word. And, And that also appealed to me too. It's not just about what you or I want God to be. He is who he is and we can't change that and we decide to follow or we decide not to. And that choice is ours. Mm. Um, The other thing I discovered was a God that doesn't force himself on us. And I think plenty plenty of times in my life I felt like he was being pushed on me. You need to be like this. You need to do this. Whereas what I discovered was a God that just says, I want to be your friend. Come to me. And it's your choice. There's no forcing. And anybody that tries to force him on you is actually not representing him not representing him well.
0: Mm. Well, why don't we do that now and look at sure. what God has to say himself and how he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And yep. the Logos for today comes from the New Testament book of John, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. And in this particular encounter, Jesus and his family were at a wedding. Now, Kate, weddings were significant events yes. in the ancient world, weren't they? So tell us what happened.
1: Look, Weddings at this time in history were very different to weddings now. Weddings now tend to be two individuals deciding they want to spend the rest of their life together. I'm talking in Western culture. Um, Weddings at this time were actually a significant community event where it was seen as the union of two families. That then meant greater... Uh, Society strengths, so economic strength with two families joining, Um, in some circumstances political strength. And so it was a whole community event when two families decided that they wanted to be joined through this marriage. And so an entire community was invited to the wedding. It wasn't just about the brides and grooms, friends and family, or even the parents of the brides and grooms ...friends and family. It was actually, if you live in this community, you come to the wedding. The other big significant difference is that a wedding wasn't just a few hours of a party. It actually went for days. It was about feasting and enjoying and celebrating over normally three or more days.
0: So, how would you feel about the catering involved yeah. in
1: that? <laughs> yeah, woo! Big job, big job. Do you think that'd be
0: a worthwhile Master Chef elimination challenge? Absolutely. Do you think that's right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Have you ever catered for a wedding?
1: Uh, I've done wedding cakes. I've been asked to cater for weddings, but I've generally turned them down because I feel like the expectation's too big. <laughs> I'm always a bit terrified of, okay. you know, scary it, brides.
0: <laughs> in verse three of this story, the narrator shares about a culinary disaster which is possibly even worse than burning gingerbread, Yeah, Um, what happens?
1: Yeah, so in these weddings, they used to have what was called the master of the banquet. And his job was generally to make sure the party kept going, make sure there was food and wine to last for the three days. Generally, what they did was they brought out the best things first. And as people were happy and jolly and didn't care quite so much, the... the, um, Lower quality food was kept there to sustain it. Um, This, however, in this situation, what we find out is they actually ran out of wine. Which was a massive social no-no uh, to run out of wine prematurely at a wedding was basically to say to the community, "We don't think you're important enough to have got this much wine well we didn't think you were, we were going to have this much fun for this much lot, this much time you know it was actually really quite offensive to the people that were there if it was cut short mm. so what we have here on the face of it is a social disaster where the the two families involved are at risk of losing face big time in their community. And we've got to remember that this is in a day where people didn't move towns when life got a bit tough. Mm. You didn't have the option to have friends on the other side of the world. The community was your entire social life. So you couldn't afford to have a social disgrace Mm. such as this.
0: So what does Jesus do to solve the problem? This is
1: what I love because you know I always thought Jesus was the party peeper. He was against having a good time. (laughs) You know, I always thought that that's what God was because of the rules. You know, I thought there were these rules and you can't have too much fun. And one of the things, we can't have wine. You can't, you know, there's, there's so many misconceptions out there about who the God of the Bible actually is. And I love it because this one confronts it head on in a couple of ways. This being one of them. Um... He's actually stepping in and making sure the party continues by changing water into wine. So he is not opposed to wine. He is not opposed to people celebrating and feasting and having a good time and letting the party go on. Um, But what I love is there's so much more in this. And the clue to this is actually at the end of the passage, you'll see there Jesus performed this first sign In Cana of Galilee. Now, John, as a writer, the guy who wrote this book in the Bible, is was a disciple of Jesus so he followed Jesus and so he saw firsthand a lot of these things that happened but when he wrote them down he wrote them down not as a historical um, account but as a way of showing that Jesus was actually God and he uses these signs so we know when he says that there's a sign there that there's actually something more going on. And when you think about it, you think, well, what has Jesus done here? He's actually stepped into the role of the master of the banquet and he's taken that responsibility to make sure that the party keeps going. And what we read in other parts of the Bible is that at the end of time, when Jesus returns, it is talked about as a feast, as a wedding feast and as a banquet. And so we get this little clue from this passage that Jesus is not just being the master of the banquet at this wedding, but actually he's the master of a bigger banquet and a more important wedding at the end of time. And so if we use knowledge that we have of other parts of the bible there's other sections where um, Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom and the church meaning God's people the people that choose to follow him and be a part of his family are referred to as the bride and the other thing I love in this passage is is Jesus' response to his mother Mm-hmm. And I think being the mother of a boy, I uh, I kind of feel for her here because it's somewhat
0: brusque he says, "What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman?" Exactly. Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come.
1: Yeah. Some versions say "dear woman," but in the original, it wasn't "dear woman." It was just like <laughs> "woman." What is? Why are you bothering me? Is basically what he's saying. Because she said they don't have any more wine. Do something about it. And then he says, "My hour has not yet come." And and on the face of it, we look at that and we think. Well, he doesn't want to do a miracle. Don't bother me. I don't want to do a miracle. But we know that actually can't be what he means because he then turns around and does the miracle. So he's obviously troubled. And I love this because we often get this picture in the media and just from what people tell us that Jesus is always gentle and always Easy and just kind. And look, he is gentle and kind, but not in our stereotypical understanding Mm. of the word. Here, he's obviously troubled. He feels human emotion like we do. He is troubled about something. What is he troubled about? And when we think about it, we think he's at a wedding. If it was me at a wedding, what am I thinking about when I'm at a wedding? Because I'm married, I'm remembering the wedding that I have. Whenever I go to a wedding, I sit there going, oh, I remember my wedding. We did it like this. We did this. We did that. Before I was married, when I sat at a wedding, I was sitting there dreaming of what my wedding would be. And I actually think that's what Jesus is thinking about here. And that's why he's troubled. Because he's saying, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, when he thinks about his wedding, he's thinking about that long-term union with his bride which is the church, but there's something pretty horrific that he has to do before he can be united with the church um, forever, and that is he has to die, and I think that's what he's thinking about. He's saying, my hour's not come, I'm not ready to get married yet because I've got to die first, and this is why there's so much emotion in this response, now, the question then that has to be asked is: why does he have to die to marry the church? Why does he have to die to be united and that comes from right at the beginning of the Bible, where god 's created the world and everything is good and then we 're given a choice: do we want to follow God as human beings or do we not and As human beings, we want to live our own way. We don't want somebody else to dictate to us how to live. And so what we end up with is a thing that the Bible calls sin. When we look at the Bible, the sin is described as a rejection of God, a heartfelt rejection of God. No, I don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. And God says very plainly, and this is something that I think I found hard to accept, one of those things that I went, I don't know if I want God to be like this. But the natural consequence of rejecting God, because he doesn't force us to be with him, is he goes, fine, then I'll live without you. And that separation from God is eternal death. Because God is all things good. And if we live without him, we have nothing good. And therefore we have eternal separation from God and we have death. And so the punishment for rejecting God has to be death separation from him Mm -hmm. and the good news is that what Jesus obviously if we all had to stand before God and say well what's my punishment we would all die and that kind of defeats the purpose of why God created us in the first place because he wanted us to be in relationship with him he wanted us to be friends with him and so if we all have to face the punishment for our rejection of him then there is nobody to left to relate to And so Jesus steps in, or God puts Jesus in that place to say, right, you will die once for everybody. And that's what he does when he dies on the cross. Mm. Now, dying on the cross in and of itself happened to lots of people. So it's not actually the death on the cross that is the important thing to Christians. It is the death on the cross that's the important thing to Christians. Mm. So the fact that he took that punishment, he was actually separated from God the Father for three days so that you and I don't have to be. And that's what Jesus is thinking about here. This is the hour
0: that he's talking about. This is the hour
1: that he's talking about. And this is why he's troubled, because that's hard. Imagine dying for the sake of everybody else. That's a massive sacrifice. Mm. And what he is thinking of here in this passage is that. And we know that that's the hour he's talking about, not the hour of his first miracle, because Mm. he turns around and he does it. Mm. But what he's saying is, Yes, I will be the master of that wedding banquet. I am happy to, not happy, I am okay to die so that I can be married to my bride at Mm. the end of time and have the feast that will end all feasts. And there's other parts of the Bible that talk about having the richest of food and the finest of wines.
0: Well, one of those, for example, is Psalm 34, 8, which says, uh, taste and see
1: that Mm. the Lord is good.
0: How does a master chef react to that?
1: Oh, I love that Bible verse, simply because... You don't normally think of God and taste in the same frame of mind. Um, but the word taste, when you think about what do you do when you taste, you take something in, you chew it around, and then you decide, am I going to swallow it or am I going to spit it out? Sometimes it's a very quick decision to spit out. But <laughs> it didn't, when that didn't it,
0: happen when you were getting judged, though, very often. Not to me, fortunately. No. <laughs> it did happen to others. Uh,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> But when we say taste and see that the Lord is good, it's like take him in, try it, see if you think it's any good. And you still have a choice. You don't have to accept. There is a consequence for that, but you don't have to. He's not forcing you. But when you take it in and you really taste it, you will see that he is good. And I think as a foodie i think i love that feeling of when i eat something and it just is good it's the only way to describe you just go oh that's good <laughs> or you know that coffee in the morning when you just think oh, i just need something it's good and i think that's the analogy that he's using here mm-hmm. taste and see that god is good it gives you that ultimate satisfaction
0: and in your life you feel that taste and see that the lord is good
1: absolutely um there are so many aspects of my life where I can now see and look back on. Often you don't see it when you're in it, um, but I think you can look back and see, wow, God was good to me there. God was good to me there. God was good to me there. Chef, funnily enough, is just one of the tiniest little ways in which I think God was good to me.
0: Let me leave you with the Logos for the day from Psalm 34.8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Please thank our guests today, Kate Brax.